One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to a special Saturday episode of The Intelligence. Sometimes it's not just weekdays that we provide fresh perspectives. The first round of France's presidential election is tomorrow, and our first ever series has been examining the race since early February. This show is a roundup of those six pieces, all in one place, looking at the candidates, their platforms, and the sharply shifting political landscape in France. We started two months ago, on February 3rd, by unveiling our election forecast model and visiting a place that shed light on France's center-right. French voters haven't re-elected an incumbent president since the victory of Jacques Chirac two decades ago. We've got reason to suspect that that pattern will be broken in April's election. According to our freshly released election forecast model, President Emmanuel Macron, who's expected to throw his hat in the ring any day now, is likely to prevail. That outcome, though, won't be decided in Parisian salons or rural vineyards. Saint-Brice-sous-Forêt is a very average sort of suburb that you find on the fringes of Greater Paris. It's really the edge of the city where the capital, the sort of built-up capital, bleeds into the fields. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. If you walk around, which I did, you see uh, sort of curved streets with small houses, each with a little garage and a parking space, and a one main street with a boulangerie, you know, a baker and... Uh, a cheesy pizza restaurant and a cafe. And then on the out of town, you have these big hypermarkets where people have to drive and do their shopping to get back to their suburban house. Okay, that all sounds pleasant enough and, and not much like the site of an election battleground. But why did you decide to go there and, and not Paris or even Marseille beyond the cheesy pizza? Well, I think that it's a mistake sometimes to think of France as either being uh, the city centre with the sort of elegant boulevards or rural France with its, you know, lavender fields and vineyards. You know, most of the French actually live in these kind of in-between suburban edge of city places. And that's where I think you need to go in order to try and understand this election. And Saint-Prix-Souforé in particular was an interesting uh, example because it's in a region that is run by the main centre-right candidate, Valérie Pécresse. But the mayor belongs to Emmanuel Macron, the president's party. So if you think of those two candidates as the sort of two main 
or leading mainstream candidates at this election, it's a really interesting place to test how they fare and what people think of them in a way that might exemplify France as a whole. In other words, locals in Saint-Brice might well be torn between voting for the president, Emmanuel Macron, or his centre-right rival, Valérie Pécresse. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that this is just the kind of electoral scenario that our data journalists love to dig into. They've built statistical models in the run-up to elections in Germany, in America, even in France back in 2017. And so far, they've been pretty accurate. They're at it again. Well, our election model for the French election this April is similar to our previous election models because the model is based on polls. Our lead polling guru, Elliot Morris, has been deep in the numbers for the forecasting tool The Economist unveiled yesterday. Indeed, the French model is based exclusively on polls. We don't use any other information. And that's really a historical choice. We couldn't find anything else that's as reliable a predictor as the polls. And what sort of polls are we talking about here? We have polls in France going back to 1965. So we can quantify how accurate they've been on any day of historical campaigns. So, for example, 200 days before the election, the polls are on average about five percentage points off. And on election day, they're about two and a half percentage points off. So there's a rough increase in precision as we get closer to the election day. But the French election model this year is different because there's a two-round system, not like you have in the U.S. or in Britain, uh, where you have to simulate first which candidates are going to make it to the runoff round that are going to place in first and second place in the first round and then sort of chain the simulations together, then see what's going to happen in the second round, repeating this entire process. So instead of having tens or hundreds of thousands of simulations like we would do for the U.S., we actually have 10 million for the French cycle, which is sort of a fun number. It doesn't mean much statistically, but 10 million is a huge number. Okay, and and what have the 10 million simulations revealed so far? Yeah, so in these 10 million faux elections of sorts, as it stands today, we have Emmanuel Macron winning about 7.9 million of them. So a win probability roughly of like 79%. Now, so that means there's a one in five chance uh, that he's not going to win, according to this model. The second likeliest candidate is Valerie Pécresse, the center-right Republican candidate. We give her around a one in 10 chance, slightly higher than the chance we would give for Marine Le Pen, the farther right candidate, who, of course, was in the runoff in 2017 with Macron. And any caveats here? How, how confident are you in the forecast so far? Well, the forecasting model is essentially as good as the polls that go into it. We can't have more accurate predictions of vote share for candidates than essentially what people tell us. That's the truth in France and in other countries. So a lot could still happen in that one in five chance. We are far away from April. We know, for example, that Macron's support in the polls has tended the fall. Support for Pécresse has increased. And there's a sort of wildcard factor, too, with Eric Zemmour, the farther right candidate who's just sort of invented his own party to run for president. That hasn't happened all that often in French presidential history. But inventing a party is exactly what incumbent President Emmanuel Macron did back in 2016. And it's a safe bet he'll soon be in the running for the election this April. Our model suggests that the battle to come will be fought on the right. That Valérie Pécresse, Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour will be jockeying for a place in a runoff against Mr. Macron in the second round. How that would go will depend on how voters reckon he's handled things the first time around. Some people are unhappy with uh, Emmanuel Macron's performance. 
I went out in Saint-Brice to a roundabout on the edge of town where there's a giant hypermarket. And I found there uh, Agnès, uh, José-Laure and Evelyne. They were standing there in the cold with their hoods up. It was a drizzly day. And next to them, they, there was this yellow painted concrete block where they had painted the Gilets Jaunes from Saint-Brice. We won't give up. This was the uprising that emerged across France in 2018, not long after Macron was elected against a rise in motor fuel tax at the time. Their current gripe is a new national rule which was introduced in January and it makes vaccination compulsory. Among these three women that I spoke to, only one of them said that she was vaccinated herself. On peut faire ça comme on veut. Alors au début, il fallait attendre six mois, voire plus. Maintenant, c'est tous les trois mois qu'il va falloir une injection. Mais combien de temps on va être injecté après But I think, uh, above all, they seem to be indignant at the way that Macron has, in their view, favoured the rich and displayed a form of contempt towards ordinary people. Et ce mépris avec lequel il traite son peuple, ça aussi, c'est inacceptable. But when I sat down with him in his office in the town hall, the mayor of Saint-Brice, Nicolas Leleu, was, was much more hopeful. Il ne faut pas négliger la majorité silencieuse. Il y a beaucoup de gens qui ne s'expriment pas. Néanmoins, ils n'en pensent pas moins. Je pense qu'aujourd'hui, le président... He told me that he thinks Macron is more popular than it seems and that there's a silent majority that back him and that they shouldn't be ignored. Sincèrement, les gens ont quand même l'impression que... Il a pris les bonnes décisions, il a fait des bonnes choses. He also said that the people he's spoken to in the town think that Macron has handled the pandemic well. And do you think it's as simple as that, that that for the presidential election there are essentially two extreme views, satisfaction and dissatisfaction? One of the things that struck me is that people weren't talking about the presidential election at all. They're much more concerned about daily issues, COVID, uh, text testing in schools, which has caused quite a lot of chaos. Some worried about, you know, the rising energy prices, heating bills, um, others about petty crime. But if thinking ahead to the election, it seems that the candidates have to address what people really are interested in. And it's those daily concerns, you know, that's what people are going to be voting on when it comes to the election in April. And in the end, what I saw in a place like Saint-Brice may well determine who governs France for the next five years. So it sounds as if we should keep a close eye then on Songlis. Absolutely. Sophie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Always a pleasure. Two weeks later, on February 17th, we examined the failings and the fragmentation of France's left-wing parties. The French are well-known for their revolutionary spirit, their workers' unions, their many, many protests. The country's relationship with socialist and communist ideas has deep roots. The Socialist Party has provided two presidents, François Mitterrand... C'est à l'histoire qu'il appartient maintenant de juger chacun de nos actes. Merci. And François Hollande... J'ai le sentiment que l'envie de changer est forte, irrépressible même. It's been the source of landmark social legislation, including the abolition of the death penalty in 1981 and the legalization of gay marriage in 2013. 
Two men have become the first gay couple to legally marry in France, just days after President François Hollande signed the same-sex marriage bill into law. But in the intervening years, the left has been left behind by voters. In the second installment of our series, we're asking how that will play out in France's coming presidential election. The left is in a dismal state. There is no candidate on the left in France for this election that looks like coming anywhere close to qualifying for the second round. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. There are too many of them, and not a single one is managing to impose him or herself as a forceful presence to attract the votes on the left. Who are the, the candidates on the left, there, there being too many of them? Well, the Socialist Party's candidate is Anne Hidalgo, who's fairly well known abroad because she's the mayor of Paris. Je suis Anne Hidalgo. Je suis une femme de gauche et je veux réunir la France. But she's doing pretty dismally in the polls. There's the Green Party candidate, that's Yannick Jadot. Redonnons à cette France, à toute la France, de l'espoir. Reprendre en main notre destin, c'est possible who ran in 2017 at the last election, but stood down in the end uh, in favor of the socialist candidate. But this time he looks like he's going to go all the way and he also is doing pretty dismally. The candidate who has emerged most recently is Christian Taubiran. Je suis candidate à l'élection présidentielle parce que les inégalités et les injustices rongent la cohésion sociale, minent la vie des gens who is an old-timer, former justice minister, and who emerged in the race really at the last moment. And then there are a clutch of other candidates on the hard left, among them Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Nous montrerons l'exemple pour lutter contre la précarité. Nous ne permettrons plus qu'on condamne les gens à une telle insécurité quotidienne. Who is a 70-year-old firebrand on his third presidential election campaign, and he is, in a way, the one that's best placed at the moment, but that's not saying much. So you say, essentially, each of those candidates is doing abysmally in the polls. Why do you suppose that is? I think that the French left has become disconnected from the blue-collar working-class vote. That was what François Mitterrand did so cleverly when he managed to blend sort of the urban public sector vote with the working-class vote. But these days, that vote now goes to Marine Le Pen. She is thought of as being on the far right, but she actually scoops up a lot of the blue-collar vote. 33% of blue-collar workers back her for president, but only 3% of them back Anne Hidalgo, the socialist candidates. And I think that this disconnection is really what explains the failure of the candidates on the left to secure enough support. With that much evidence support for Marine Le Pen, uh, a fairly hard right figure, it, it sort of suggests that the median voter has kind of marched to the right. I think that's right. If you look today at polls, you find that 37% of voters say they're on the right now. And that's uh, four points higher than it was in 2017. And only 20% of them say they're on the left. So we have seen a shift in the structure of, of French politics. Some people blame Emmanuel Macron for that because he created this big centrist party and stole from both the left and the right. And in a way, it sort of realigned French politics. And that has crushed a lot of the former socialist party. And I think what we've seen at the same time is the emergence of identity politics in France in a very strong way. We've got two candidates here on the far right who are trying to frame the debate around immigration and Islam. And that has also contributed, I think, to building a campaign that is really about the right and not this year about the left. 
And it is kind of becoming crunch time ahead of the French election. Do you think there's any hope that the the left could be revived, that these poll numbers might rise? Well, there was an effort to try and save the left when a citizens group organized a people's primary. Nous sommes 85% des électeurs et électrices dits de gauche et de l'écologie à vouloir qu'une candidature de rassemblement nous représente pour la prochaine élection. The point of this people's primary, of course, was to try and ensure that only one candidate would emerge and the others would then drop out. 400,000 people actually took part in this and the person that they designated was Christiane Toubiran. But because this was not an, a formal uh, process that was agreed on by the candidates, none of them actually then stood down. But is this fragmentation the the left's biggest problem, really? It seems like there are bigger forces at work. Well, it's going to stop them getting into the second round, but I think there's a bigger problem, and that is that all this uh, squabbling among candidates and attempts to try and find a way forward has eclipsed any serious, proper debate about what the left stands for now. There are plenty of issues that are a problem in France, whether it's about integrating minorities or curbing inequality, or even recent issues like how to protect the poor from from the burdens of the green transition at a time when public spending has reached an exceptional level because of the pandemic. So these are big questions for social democrats across Europe and certainly in France, but they're not the ones that are being grappled with at the moment by the French left. So I think if the left has a future in France, its candidates are doing a very good job of disguising it. Thanks very much for joining us, Sophie. Thank you, Jason. On March 3rd, we looked at the Republican candidate, Valérie Pécresse, who had until that time been the most serious challenger to President Emmanuel Macron. The clock is ticking for would-be presidential contenders in France. The election isn't for five weeks, but the deadline for candidates to gather 500 signatures from elected officials and announce a run is tomorrow. Éric Zemmour and Marine Le Pen, the two top far-right contenders, have only just passed the threshold. Mesdames et messieurs les maires, j'ai besoin de vous. Bonsoir à tous. Others will have to drop out. Il est évident que nous ne réussirons pas à réunir les 500 parrainages. French President Emmanuel Macron has been preoccupied with other matters. Seront vraisemblablement de plus en plus durs. Such as leading Europe's diplomatic effort to head off war in Ukraine. Dans cette épreuve sans précédent depuis nombre de décennies. Nous nous tenons aux côtés de l'Ukraine. But there's one candidate who's had all her signatures sorted for weeks. Mais nous sommes de retour en ordre de bataille pour la victoire et les Français l'ont compris, ce sera Emmanuel Macron ou nous. After winning the primary of the Republican Party in December, Valérie Pécresse recorded a big bump in the poll. But despite that early strong showing, her campaign has been sputtering. In this third installment of our French election series, we look at what Valérie Pécresse's declining fortunes could spell for the race to come. I followed Valérie Pécresse as part of her campaign trail, which has taken her all over France. In fact, she's been one of the most diligent campaigners to a town in the Ardennes called Charleville-Mézières. 
which is a small town in northeastern France. And there was a lot of hope and enthusiasm about her at the rally that I attended. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. I spoke to one woman who said she really believed that it was time for a woman president and that she was strong enough to take on that role. Another told me that she thought Valérie Pécresse seemed quite confident and that she really knew how to listen. I would say that overall, the people I saw in Charleville-Mézières were really quite excited at the prospect of electing France's first female president. So who is Valérie Pécresse exactly? What's her political background? Well, Valérie Pécresse is a very experienced politician. She's been around for decades. She has described herself uh, as two-thirds Merkel and one-third Thatcher. I think, you know, most people know her as being head of the greater Paris region, the Ile-de-France. She was once universities minister under Nicolas Sarkozy. She was also a budget minister. And she, like Emmanuel Macron, has was educated at the elite civil service at training college, the École Nationale d'Administration. This means that she is well briefed. She's quite serious in debate. Some people have nicknamed her the, the bulldozer. And she did very well in the debates in the Republicans' primary late last year, which is what I think explains how she won the nomination in the end. And really, up until just a few weeks ago, she looked as if she was the most credible challenger to Emmanuel Macron. And you say up until a few weeks ago, what's changed in the meantime? Well, I think there's a structural reason, and that's that fundamentally, Valérie Pécresse doesn't really have a programme that is that different to Emmanuel Macron's. She's instinctively part of the centre-right. She was a sort of fairly moderate budget minister when she was in government. She is seen as someone who is fiscally conservative. She's in favour of tax cuts, as has he been. And therefore, the base that she's appealing to on the centre-right is pretty much the base that has already swung behind Macron. And that makes it very difficult. Yet the real problem she's had is that her party, actually, its centre of gravity sits to the right. And this means that she has had to or has chosen to take a pretty tough line on some of questions about immigration, uh, uh, identity politics. She has done more than nod to the party's right wing. And obviously in France, because there are these two very strong candidates on the extreme right, and notably Eric Zemmour, but also Marine Le Pen, this means that she has tried to straddle a position that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. It's both moderate in some respects, especially on the economy. But when it comes to values and, and, and identity, she comes across as really very right wing. So why has she taken th- this hard turn now? Is it, is it just a matter of electoral arithmetic? Well, I think that's part of the explanation. But in, in many ways, I actually think she has been always a sort of cultural conservative. She voted in the National Assembly against the legalisation of gay marriage back in 2013. And she even at one point proposed unmarrying gay couples if that law was ever passed. She's since backtracked on that. But I think she has a very much a family values, cultural conservatism that sits a little oddly with her more liberal economic views. 
And then I think the point that she has had to concede ground to the party's right has been really quite dramatic. At a rally in Paris quite recently, she even mentions the great replacement theory. This is the idea that's espoused by Eric Zemmour that France's population is being overwhelmed by immigrants and in particular Muslim immigrants. And it's a theory that is actually outside France, espoused by white supremacists. So the fact that she mentioned it in a quite ambiguous phrase was seen as as pretty disappointing to some of those on the more moderate end of the centre-right. And so that, that turn in particular is what's led to her downfall in the polls? I think it's a combination of the poor performance at this rally. She was also very oddly stilted and it was quite a wooden performance, which surprised some people. And I think that she has just somehow failed to really make her mark on the French mind. The heart of this problem, it's both structural, it's a poor performance, and it's also somehow a failure to persuade the French that she's a a serious candidate. And, And what does that decline in the polls mean for the race more generally, do you think? Well, of course, there are still five weeks to go. So I think, you know, anyone would, wouldn't would want at this point to rule out there being further sort of shifts in the polls. But I think what we're looking at potentially is the failure of the centre-right, you know, a major political family that has dominated French political life under the Fifth Republic going all the way back to 1958, a failure to put forward a candidate that has a good chance of becoming a president. And this in a way, is almost a mirror image of what's happened on the French left, which we've talked about before. As a consequence, you have Macron, who holds the sort of this centrist position, and then you have the extremes. And that is what we saw back in 2017 when Emmanuel Macron was first elected. Uh, And we are increasingly seeing a repeat of that situation where you have a strong centre and then strong extremes. But the moderate sort of traditionally dominant political parties really struggling to exist. Of course, all of these dynamics may shift again once Emmanuel Macron finally declares officially that he is indeed running for re-election. Sophie, again, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jason. By March 17th, it was clear that Mr. Macron's campaign and his ability to campaign were being constrained by war in Ukraine. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. France's President Emmanuel Macron has been relentlessly seeking a diplomatic solution with Russia before and since the country invaded Ukraine. He's called or met with Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, at least 16 times since last December. Uh, I have to say, we constantly engaged in the discussion with uh, President Putin. It was the very last minute before he launched his uh, war, and after he decided to launch his war, 
to try to reopen negotiations and get a ceasefire. Meeting with Ukrainian refugees at a welcome center this week, he's also announced plans to welcome at least 100,000 of their number. And he's not ruling out a visit to the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, but only if there is what he calls a tangible result. Je n'exclus rien et aucune initiative politique. Je le ferai quand je considérerai que il peut y avoir un résultat utile et tangible. Amidst all of this, you could be forgiven for forgetting that Mr. Macron is also in the middle of a re-election campaign. In this fourth installment of our French election series, we look at how the return of war to Europe is influencing voters ahead of the April poll. This presidential race is turning out to be one of the strangest election campaigns in modern times, certainly the strangest that I've ever covered. Sophie Petter is our Paris bureau chief. Emmanuel Macron, who's the sitting president, waited until March the 3rd. That was a day before the deadline, before he announced formally and finally that he's running for re-election in a letter that he published to the French public. A few days later, I then went uh, to his first campaign event in Poissy, which is a town in Les Yvelines to the west of Paris. And Macron told the crowd that he is running for re-election, but in a very unusual, unique geopolitical context. It seemed like he was saying this almost as a way to manage people's expectations of him on the campaign trail and how much time he was going to be able to devote to it because, as he kept saying, I'm also president and there is a war on. Avant de vous retrouver, j'étais avec le président Biden. Demain, je suis avec le président Xi Jinping. On va continuer. And how did that land among the people who were at that launch? What were they saying? Talking to people at the event, some of them highlighted his ability to manage crisis very well, and that's something that he tends to be quite good at. One young man told me that he trusted Emmanuel Macron to govern France again because of his track record so far. Je pense que c'est celui qui est le plus apte à gouverner la France. Il l'a déjà fait. On voit pendant la crise que c'est celui qui est le plus compétent pour gérer. But other people at that event were not quite that supportive. There was one woman I spoke to who suggested that Macron was using the war as an excuse to look like some kind of savior. Il a servi de cette guerre en Ukraine pour justement paraître le grand sauveur des Français, mais en occultant en fait les problèmes de fond de la France. It was, in her view, a means of deflecting criticism of his own presidency. Well, what do you make of that argument that it is a bit of uh, wartime president electioneering? Well, I think it's inevitable that Macron is going to be open to that criticism because he is trying to use diplomacy and other means to bring an end to the war in Ukraine at the same time as he's campaigning for the presidency. The two are happening at the same time and that exposes him to the criticism. But I think, you know, you are actually also looking at someone who, as a politician, is at his best in a crisis, and that is what the French are seeing. There are a lot of factors right now that are playing in his favour. The French, I think, are feeling extremely anxious, like many in Europe at the moment, and so the sort of search for stability could play in his favour. It's also meaning that because he's spending so much time on the phone to Putin or trying to talk to other Europeans and other Western allies about ending this war, that he's not spending so much time on the campaign trail. And a lot of the candidates are finding that very frustrating. He said, for example, he won't participate in any debate until the second round. 
until the second round of the election, the the April 24th runoff, suggesting he's very confident that on April 10th he's going to sail through the first round. Well, I mean, he's trying to tell his own campaign team not to sound triumphalist, and he's insisted publicly that everything is still open, everything's still to play for, and that it's a mistake ever to assume that things are won until they are. But if you look at The Economist's electoral forecasting model, we now put it 97%. Macron's chances of re-election, which is really astonishingly high. So I don't think there is much doubt that he will make it to the second round. The other candidates are not looking as strong at the moment. How do you mean? How are those other candidates looking? I think the war has had an impact on all the candidates, not just those on the extreme. There has been a a sort of rally around the flag effect. Nearly 80% of the French support welcoming refugees. They're supporting the export of arms to Ukraine. And it means that it's quite a difficult time for a Eurosceptic candidate or for an anti-immigration candidate, which both Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour are, to make that case. I think also that Vladimir Putin's aggression has exposed the contradictions of a number of Macron's opponents, in particular those on both the far left and the far right. If you think about Marine Le Pen, she Uh, took a campaign loan from a Russian bank back in 2014. And in one of her campaign brochures, she advertised a photograph of her meeting Putin in the Kremlin, which has become an embarrassment. So even if Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour have made an effort to say that they condemn the war, uh, their past praise for either Russia or Putin has come back uh, to really embarrass them. That goes for Eric Zemmour as well, because he, up to a point, has been the most praiseworthy of, of Putin and at one point said Putin was a true Russian patriot. Seul Poutine reconnaît qu'il regrette le temps de la grandeur de l'Union soviétique. Tous les patriotes russes regrettent le temps où leur pays était une des deux puissances mondiales. Comme... And at another time, he said that he dreamed of there being a French Putin. Oui, on a connu ça après Vous rêvez d'un Putin français Ah euh, oui, j'en rêverais. Oui. And on the far left, Jean-Luc Mélenchon too has been uh, caught out by the fact that he has found it very difficult to condemn much of Russia's aggression over the past few years. Well, in that sense, it seems like things are are kind of going Mr. Macron's way. Macron knows he can't be complacent. He does still suffer from this image of being a remote president. It's an image that he cultivated himself when he took office, of course. And even if 59% told a poll that they think he's risen to the challenge over Ukraine, only a third say that he is close to people's concerns. And those on the left still judge him to be the president who helped the rich because of the early tax cuts that he made. So there are still uh, criticisms of the sitting president in France, and and you continue to hear them. But the opposition is so fragmented, has proved to be so weak, that I think even with this popularity problem, it is increasingly hard now to see how Mr. Macron won't next month in the end, keep his job. Sophie, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Jason. It's always a pleasure. On March 31st, my taskmasters at last allowed me out of the office, and we hit the ground in France, exploring how the country's large Muslim population figured into a race that was always going to be fought on the right. Bonjour, bienvenue au meeting d'Eric Zemmour 
In Paris, on Sunday, tens of thousands of people descended on the Trocadero, just across the Seine River from the Eiffel Tower. They'd come for the biggest campaign rally yet of Eric Zemmour, a candidate of the extreme right. He'd been a TV pundit, polemicist, who entered the presidential race in late November and swiftly looked like he posed a serious challenge to Marine Le Pen, a stalwart of the country's far right. We'd come to see how Mr. Zemmour would whip up supporters with his platform, anti-feminist, anti-woke, anti-foreigner, and perhaps most of all, anti-Muslim. By the time Mr. Zemmour took the stage, we'd been there for more than two hours, as one party functionary after another gave speeches, interspersed with slick campaign videos featuring the parents of children killed by North African migrants or by Islamist terrorism. For some, it's a resonant message. France has been the site of horrific attacks. It's easy for the likes of Mr. Zemmour to play to public fears, to elide Islam and Islamic terror. But his speech was, well, pretty flat, academic. He is no firebrand, but the crowd got whipped up all the same. A chant of, this is our home, starts elsewhere in the crowd and picks up in volume. Then it's, get on the plane. Early in the campaign, this kind of stuff got Mr. Zemmour lots of attention and support in the polls. But the truth is that apart from this rally, people seem to have cooled on him as the vote on April 10th nears. In this fifth installment of our French election series, we're going to look at why the feelings he's tapped into, renormalized in French society, why those will outlast his presidential run. One part of France where you'll find the kinds of tensions that Mr. Zemmour is stoking most in evidence is in the region of Provence in the southeast. The cultural mix includes lots of immigrants from North Africa and their descendants, and it's a place that reliably leans to the right in elections like the current one. Our first stop was Marseille, France's second city of 1.6 million people, which is the exception. It's more cosmopolitan and not so long ago was a socialist and communist stronghold. Our cab driver Laurent said he wasn't interested in voting, but he seemed very up on politics. He used one phrase that stuck out. The Great Replacement. It's from a book by a far-right writer named Renaud Camus. It's become a white supremacist talking point around the world. In France, the idea is of a relentless replacement of so-called French people with those from France's former colonies, like Algeria, just across the Mediterranean. Mr. Zemmour leans hard on this idea. The French constitution explicitly states that the republic will be laïque, a strict form of secularism that's central to France's identity. For Mr. Zemmour and Marine Le Pen of the National Rally, the wearing of the hijab and the Muslim prayer times that can spill out onto French streets are an affront to that idea. We had come to Marseille to visit the Mosque El Islah, the biggest mosque in southern France, in one of the city's northern districts that are known for poverty and crime. 
We arrived when a class full of children were getting their two hours of Saturday lessons and met Murad Hamza, an imam who preaches at the mosque and elsewhere in the region. I asked him about his faith being dragged into the presidential campaign rhetoric. How, how, does, it feel to, how does it feel to the community that Islam, Islamism is so prevalent, so, uh, so, so talked about in politics? Bonjour, français. Or, l'islam fait partie de la société française depuis maintenant plus de deux siècles, même plus. He told us these days Muslims in France are treated like second class citizens. Et considère les musulmans comme des citoyens de seconde zone. He said every aspect of Muslim life is often seen as a sign of extremism. Even wanting to learn Arabic can earn you the label of Islamist. As the call to prayer began, Mr. Hamza began to roll up his sleeves in preparation for his ablutions, and we bid him goodbye. If you are. Nearer the center of the city is the En Nasser Mosque, where we again arrived just in time for prayers. People ran past us, prayer mats tucked under arms and slung over shoulders. No one wanted to be late. The mosque was full, more than full. As we walked around its perimeter, men knelt on mats laid out on the pavement outside. A few minutes later, they all dispersed, hundreds and hundreds of people firing up scooters or cars or walking away. When we approached a few of the young men who lingered behind, they spoke first about the sitting president. They weren't big fans. A crook, a liar, an actor. It went on. When asked about other presidential contenders, there was no consensus. One said his life would probably remain just as difficult no matter who wins the race. Another expressed his disappointment in the French electorate, saying he didn't understand how so many people would want to vote for Marine Le Pen or Eric Zemmour. It's a fair point. On the full political spectrum, Mr. Zemmour and Ms. Le Pen aren't so far apart. We set off for Fréjus, a pretty little town to the east, not far from the beach, that consistently votes for Ms. Le Pen's national rally. There we met with Frank Giletti, who's the regional head of the party. Ms. Le Pen, like Mr. Zemmour, makes frequent reference to French traditions, to customs and mores, by which it seems they frequently mean past ones or Christian ones. So I wanted to ask Frank about the party's kind of identity platform. In plain terms, what are the issues about identity that the party cares about? Oh, um, we can see that uh, we can see that um, some our tradition are not respected, our way of life sometimes are not respected. Like uh, uh, you know, there is some swimming pool. There is a, a planning for women, planning for men. So it doesn't the identity of France. That's why we said this. This is not our identity. Islamism uh, wants some people. The only Islamist people want to change change this um, 
this uh, way of life. When I press him about women wearing the hijab, a question that has long divided France versus other religious symbols, he gets frustrated and lapses into French. It's not the same idea, idea you know, it's... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I, I don't understand why. Uh, je, je the connotation is not the same, he says, to where the veil is linked to a political agenda. This is key for those on and he pointed out the town hall, the church. The people who live here wants to, to keep their way of life, uh, their tradition, their way of life, more, maybe more than in the, uh, the other place of France. And especially, specifically to this um, uh, town. For Frank, Ms. Le Pen and the rest of the country's hard right, it's this postcard vision of France that's being threatened. Reconciling these two parts of French society, on one side, people who are afraid that too much will change, on another, people who are afraid that nothing will, that is going to be a long road. And one of the only things that's clear is that this election has made that road longer. And this week, on April 7th, we met with members of Marine Le Pen's national rally, learning how a long program of burnishing the party's image was paying dividends. The first round of France's presidential election is three days away, and one poll after another suggests the same thing. Marine Le Pen of the National Rally will give the incumbent Emmanuel Macron a serious challenge, something the president nodded to at his first and so far only campaign rally on Saturday. Regardez, du Brexit à temps d'élection, ce qui paraissait improbable et qui a pu advenir. The fact that Ms. Le Pen is faring so well is down in part to a long rehabilitation of the party, distanced somewhat from its founder, her father, Jean-Marie. In 1972, he co-founded what was then called the National Front, a party that was staunchly, viciously, unapologetically far-right. National Front leader Jean-Marie Le Pen thunders against what he calls the government's incapacity to halt the invasion of France by foreigners who take work from Frenchmen and fill the hospitals and prisons. Nearly 40 years later, in 2011, Marine was elected to lead the party. Marine Le Pen is elected president du Front National. The idea then and since was to soften the party's message, to clean up its image. Her father is now out of the party altogether, and since 2018 has its new name. And in this campaign, Ms. Le Pen has been comparatively quiet on immigration. That's partly because the slate of candidates has its magnet for the extreme right, Eric Zemmour. So now Ms. Le Pen can claim to be less extreme, to be more focused 
on the kinds of kitchen table concerns that she says Emmanuel Macron has left unaddressed. Emmanuel Macron était ministre de l'économie. Il s'est pas plus senti tenu de ses promesses qu'il ne se sent tenu aujourd'hui. Les Français n'en peuvent plus de ce mépris. In this sixth installment of our French election series, we're going to look at how she has ended up as Mr. Macron's greatest threat and what that means for a storied party that has very much come in from the fringes of the country's politics. Last week, we looked at the role of Islam in the election and went to the little town of Fréjus, where Ms. Le Pen launched her campaign last year. We told you how we spoke with Frank Giletti, who's a party official in the region. We spoke about the role that identity and immigration are playing in the campaign and about the party's far-right image. We are not from left or from right. We are for the French. And also it is the main idea of this campaign. We are not right, we are not far right, we are not left. Maybe there is a good thing from the left, and why not? We work for the French, or the French. He said the party's stance on immigration was unchanged, but he said Mr. Zemmour's campaign focuses exclusively on it. Ms. Le Pen, he said, had a more complete program, fixing the failures of the country's centrist parties. They used to have the, the power, the centrism. They used to be elected, and people noticed that nothing changed. There is still unemployment, there is still insecurity, there is still immigration. They pay a lot of tax, more and more tax. They feel less free than before, not happy, and they don't believe in this politics. That's why maybe some people want to change and want to try a party who doesn't have responsibility before. There's another focus that's playing a big role too, courting the youth vote. How many French people, young French people, live in London? 300,000, maybe more. These people are good education, have a good place, but they prefer to live in London. Why? Because they don't feel free in France, because there are a lot of taxes, a lot of issues. And what she said, these people, plenty of energy, a lot of ideas, we need them in France. The national rally has been a party in flux for years, but never more so than now. I asked Frank where he saw it all going. Given the big changes over the past 10 years, where do you see the party in five or 10 years more? And he had a simple answer. In, in the Elysee? No, no. <laughs> right. The Elysee, the presidential palace. That push for the youth vote is working, especially among the rural and the less educated. Of the young people planning on voting, more are behind Ms. Le Pen than back any other candidate. To find out why, we headed west to Brignoles, where we met with Julien Chevet, the local head of Generation Nation, the party's youth wing. Bonjour. Julien. He and a few colleagues were pasting Marine Le Pen posters on a roadside electricity substation. What? The poster is in two halves, Emmanuel Macron in black and white, Marine Le Pen smiling in full color. The words say sans-louis avec Marine. Julien explained. Voilà, quand on voit l'affiche sans lui avec Marine, euh, sans lui, parce que du coup, on a vécu euh, cinq ans vraiment de, euh, de galère. Without him, with Marine, he says. The past five years have been a struggle, 
Everything good was made bad, everything bad got worse. So why with Marine and not with the left-leaning parties that traditionally court young voters? She's the one who has the logic for us, he says. Her campaign promises to abolish income tax for the under 30s, to cut value-added tax on petrol and energy bills, and to lower motorway tolls. Julian says all that will help young people build their futures. It will make me want to work more, to flourish, to build up savings, to buy a house. In a region where a car is a necessity, cutting petrol prices and tolls really resonates with people like Julian. But what about the history, the stigma of the party? These days, young activists have to travel in groups of three because there have been attacks on other poster pasters. La caricature qu'on veut lui faire depuis depuis des années, et c'est vrai que voilà, vous nous voyez, on n'est pas on n'est pas des gens anormaux. Marine isn't the caricature people make her out to be. He tells us, we're not extremists. We just want to unite people. It would seem that the national rally is succeeding in its latest push to diversify from right-wing talking points, to claim to be a progressive party of unity. Everywhere we went, we had to press party members about her position on matters such as immigration. All they typically talked about was those pocketbook issues. But open up the party literature and the top three concerns remain the same. Uncontrolled immigration, Islamism, and the security that's under threat. Those messages are being laid out a lot more clearly by Jordan Badela, the 26-year-old acting president of the party. We met him at a press conference before a local party meeting in Marseille. Flashy event, it wasn't. Two photographers, two bodyguards, a handful of journalists. He stressed the parts of the party's platform that have seemed less a focus from Ms. Le Pen's campaign efforts. He spoke of needing to regain control. He reiterated the party's promise of priority access to employment and housing for French citizens, of a referendum aimed at clamping down hard on immigration. He said there would be a national outright ban on wearing the hijab, which he said is no longer a religious garment, but a tool of conquest. Victory is not an option, it's a necessity, he concluded. Emmanuel Macron will be defeated. Emmanuel Macron sera battu. That isn't as outlandish a claim as it seemed when we started this series. Our election forecast model now gives Ms. Le Pen a one in five chance of victory. (laughs) Win or lose, though, with that shift in focus, with a rival further out to the extreme right, with the devotion of a fair fraction of the country's youth, Marine Le Pen and the National Rally will emerge from this campaign in a different place in France's politics.
That's all for this special Saturday episode of The Intelligence. Our series will continue in two days' time with results from the first round of the election. Later, we'll be taking a close look at the strengths, failings, and challenges ahead for current President Emmanuel Macron, who's still the favorite to win in the second round. You can find all of our coverage of the poll at economist.com slash France 2022. And you might consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Our cover this week considers why Mr. Macron matters, but also why he's a cautionary tale for centrists everywhere. The series editor is Kim Gittleson and series producer Alizé Jean-Baptiste, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Thanks also to Sam Westron and Rory Galloway for production help along the way. We'll see you back here with the results on Monday. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.